You are listening to the sassiest podcast in the world. Born in the Nordics, democratizing B2B SaaS knowledge everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is Bridget Harris, the CEO and co-founder at You Can Book Me. Venture capitalists want to give you loads of money to spread loads of bets across loads of different ideas and they're just going to chuck that money at you. And if you are in the right kind of frame of mind, then take that money, make those bets, have fun, get paid. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sassiest Podcast. Happy that you are tuning in today. I hope everything is good with you. What about you, Daniel? All good? All good, like always. Everything's very good, uh, as you all know and you Thomas hopefully you're like on top of it all the time I know which you are you know we are a few weeks away from one of our big events this year here the event we have in Amsterdam so Sassius Amsterdam is around the corner uh, so that's very exciting and it's coming together really nicely looking forward to meeting many of you there uh, so that, that's really cool to, to see that it's actually happening now absolutely and it's a full day uh, all inclusive a fantastic lineup of speakers everything from international thought leaders like April Dunford and Aaron Ross uh, a lot of uh, leaders uh, from the Benelux within sales, marketing, customer success, product, people. And uh, then also we have some Nordic guests as well. And uh, food and drinks and party in the evening. And we think we're going to have a great time together. Hope that you can come and that you will bring your friends and colleagues. Uh, today we're going to talk with a person that we think is really impressive. She's been running a bootstrap company for, for quite many years and um, have a lot of learnings that uh, she is sharing very generously. Yes, I, I think uh, let's dive into it and find out what it takes to run a business the way they run a business. I'm sure we can learn a lot of things. Absolutely. So uh, let's do it. Today, we are really happy to be joined by Bridget Harris, the CEO and founder of You Can Book Me, here in the Sassiest Podcast. Warm welcome, Bridget. Thanks very much for asking me on, Thomas. Hi, Daniel. It's nice to see you both. Hey, Bridget. It's really nice to see you again. And we see you have some, some great views there. So where are you right now? I am at the top of Scotland. I'm in the Northwest Highlands. So yes, I can show you my views because it is, it is stunning. Wow. There is some beautiful... This is the Summer Isles for anybody who knows the, the northwest of Scotland. It's the, the um, archipelago of islands called the Summer Isles. And um, it is a very, very beautiful part of the world. Gotcha. But, but you're not normally based there, right? No, normally I'm in the south of England in a town called Bedford. Okay. So uh, beside where, where you reside, what else can you tell us uh, about yourself? Like the listeners that might not know you, who is Bridget? <laughs> Uh, so I run a company, as you said, called You Can Book Me. It's a, um, a software uh, solution that provides online appointment scheduling uh, software, much like I'm sure some of the famous alternatives that we have. <laughs> no names mentioned. <laughs> they know who they are. The, uh, the, the background to that is that me and my husband kind of co-founded this uh, company together. Um, he's the CTO and the CEO. And together, we've really develop from first principles as first-time entrepreneurs how to build a successful software company. Um, and we've done it on our own terms and things things that we like um, and want to prioritize. So for example, we're a remote company, so we hire and employ people in 
France and Germany and uh, Spain and Portugal and the US. And we've grown the company organically as well. So very, very early example of product-led growth uh, being bootstrapped um, from the beginning. Um, before that, I was actually, I worked in parliament and I worked in politics in the UK. So I had a long background working as a political advisor. Um, and um, I think that, you know, this whole kind of experience of the last 15 years for me has been a really interesting new career to, to run a software company and to be a, an entrepreneur, whereas my previous experience was always informed by um, working in the public sector. Bridget, I just have to ask, like, very briefly, how is it to work with your spouse? It's, it's worked very well for us. Um, I think it entirely depends on uh, people's relationships and their marriages and, uh, you know, and how they want to spend their time. But me and Keith work really, really well together. Um, I actually think that it's, we're very lucky as co-founders because we have very complementary but, but um, different skills. So as a result, as co-founders, we can work very well together and maintain 100% trust in what the other person is doing. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I feel sort of sorry sometimes for people who have co-founders where there's some struggles or, 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 or um, uh, disagreements and they have separate interests. So the thing about me and Keith is that we have exactly the same shared interests in what we're doing. Right. Um, but then obviously separate responsibilities. So in his side, it's technical and my side is business and operations um, and finance. Uh, so, so we can trust each other in what we're doing. Yeah. But at the same time, Keith has actually stepped away from You Can Book Me Now, and he's no longer works day to day on the, on the the company itself, which I think is a sort of a, a testimony to how we've built the company in a very, um, you know, the the operation side of it has been um, very well run. In fact, I can talk about this a bit more in terms of how we've run the culture uh, and the operations of You Can Book Me over a long period of time is that you need to have very good boundaries. Right. So what I would say is that even if you're working with a friend or a relative or, or a spouse, you just need to make sure that your boundaries are in place to separate who you are as a person in your job and then who you are as a person at home. And I think me and Keith try to keep things fairly separate. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we are actually our spouses in the board at the moment. So And, and it's still going well. So uh, <laughs> hoping for that. Uh, but uh, could you tell us a little bit more about your company and what you do and solve? Um, you Can Book Me is a online scheduling um, tool. Um, we started off, um, actually, we had a, a previous product, which still is around, called When Is Good, which does um, consensus scheduling, finding a time for a group of people to meet. Okay. Um, and You Can Book Me basically was a pivot 12 years ago out of that tool. So people wanted slots that they could book. Um, and so as a result, it started to grow very fast in America. So most of our market is in North America, but we're growing um, more and more in, in Europe and in, in, in other parts of the world. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those classic freemium tools where it's a free, free version of the tool. And then people will pay, you know, not very much money sort of every every month for upgrades for what, whatever it is that they want to, to do. So it's allowed us very specifically to follow kind of an organic growth path on that because, you know, scheduling is a natural uh, viral growth loop. Yeah. And who's your ideal customer? Who do you target the most? The, the, the vast majority of customers on You Can Book Me are small businesses and solopreneurs um, and education, uh, people who use sort of one or two licenses a month um, or teams up to about 20. I mean, we do have some other companies who use You Can Book Me at a much wider scale. It just depends on their use case. So it, it partly depends on 
um, how they're using scheduling, what job it is that they're trying to solve. So, um, so there's lots of areas like recruitment and sales and customer success and onboarding and in the education uh, context, student advising, um, student admissions, you know, these are professor, student, office hours. These are all kind of scheduling use cases. They get used a lot. So we are, the majority of our customers are fairly small customers, but then we do have customers who, who take that to, you know, hundreds or a couple of hundred or 400 people. Yeah, and, and I must ask, there are some big players out there in a similar uh, with similar offerings. Mm-hmm. How do you do to diversify or position yourself t- towards them? Um, so where we where we're different from some of the other tools, um, we know because we've been around for a very long time. You can book me is basically the best tool for multi languages. So we have lots of big companies that use you can book me in in uh, countries, Asian countries, you know, in Israel where they need right to left on Hebrew or in, in Arabic, um, or customizations for um, different date time formats, that kind of thing. So you can book me basically is the most customizable um, for workflows language translations and all the really technical stuff like api type you know webhook uh, tracking things right so we have a lot of people who love us for that reason um we you know we've always been a very i would say i'm not sure this is a term but very generous in terms of our product functionality so it's always been a struggle is it's always a struggle for people how you offer lots of choice and at the same time um make things simple and easy right so if you can book me um you know we're very generous in what we allow people to do and as a result they love it yeah um i think the other thing that we are working on right now and we're really proud of that we are investing in at the moment actively is the booking experience so we believe that it is for these tools because you're right they're 10 a penny yeah um, and most of them are free or they can be added on to your CRM. You know, it's not difficult to get a, a booking tool nowadays. Mm. Um, so we are, um, we've just rolled out um, the ability to share availability from a booker as well as um, an account holder. So if you look at a You Can Book Me page, you can overlay your calendar. And right now you can do it if you're an existing You Can Book Me okay. account holder, but you'll be able to do it for any calendar. Yeah. And so we want to Im- improve the options for bookers. As a, as a real kind of differentiator for us. Makes a lot of sense and, and a lot of good stuff ahead of you. So today we actually want to talk about uh, your bootstrapping journey. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, we also like to put things in perspective. So let's just take a look at some of your numbers and and, and, and let's, let's see where you guys are at. So if you share with us, what is your current ARR? If you can give us the number or a range, just, just so the audience knows where you guys are currently and how fast are you growing? Uh, so, well, right now we're about $5 million ARR. Yep. Um, it does fluctuate, you know, depending on what our monthly, our monthly um, uh, retention rate is and stuff. Right. Um, in terms of growth, we're just about to start on a sort of a fairly significant growth rate because it's August and we always, you know, we always benefit from a seasonal um, change in the year. So everybody adopts online scheduling and comes back from schools and does stuff like that. Um, you know, it's it's hard to say what the growth rate is going to be over the next couple of years, but our aim is to get to ten million dollars ARR in a couple of years. That's a, that's a sort of benchmark of what we're trying to achieve. That's 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 very fast growth. And and if you look at your existing customer base, like how many customers do you have right now? And you mentioned a little bit that many of them are in the U.S. Like, is that is it U.S. and Europe that these customers normally reside in? Yeah, mostly. Yeah, most of them are in the U.S. actually. Yeah. And we have about 20,000 customers. Mm. Um, and again, most of them are paying us $10, $20 a month. So it's a very small, very small annual ARPU, whatever it is. It's 
whatever the term is, but it, the, 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 the annual return from each customer is very small, which is why we have thousands of them. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you're bootstrapped. And at least before I started, uh, you know, going into more of these SaaS things and so on, that was actually a term I wasn't familiar with. I can confess that. So imagine that there are listeners here. They don't know what it's about. So what is your definition of being a bootstrapped company? And could you just explain the basics for us first? Okay, well, the most important thing about it is just a really simple one, which is about ownership, which means that myself and my co-founder own 100% of the shares of the company. So um, really what it's implying is that you're, you're not selling parts of your shares of your company to other people who would be giving you money to invest in your company. That's it in a nutshell. And in fact, most businesses run like that. So most businesses um, borrow money um, in order to get their product or service up and running. And they borrow it from the bank. They get bank loans or um, they borrow money from private means. Right. Um, and then they get enough customers to basically demonstrate viability of their business and then eventually they get really super big and then they might take on investment a bit later and then eventually they go for an ipo and they sell shares in that company on the public market so that's sort of a traditional model if you like mm. um when we were uh, bootstrapping you can book me we had a lot of conversations with angel investors and banks at the time and actually we got some mixed messages from some of them some of the angel investors said if you can avoid it try not to sell Uh, parts of your company because of course as soon as you start to sell shares in your company you're also selling an element of control right or voting rights or uh, decisions about what you do so for you what was this was this a was it a financial decision or what is a philosophical decision as to how you want to run the company like did you make a decision or it just happened a little bit uh we did make a decision in the sense that we had conversations with people who were interested in investing and we never We never pushed that forward. Um, on the other hand, we're fairly inexperienced. So had we known what we were doing, we might have had more successful conversations and been convinced. But there was no conversation I had with investors where I was convinced that we would be making a better set of decisions with these people on board and with this money in, in place than if we did it just more slowly and over time. So put it a different way, I'd rather learn from my mistakes slowly right. than you know fail fast, which is in some ways what people assume. I'd rather make... A million pounds slowly than lose a million pounds fast mm. so what it really got linked into was my sense of risk and um control um and that the risk of making a mistake by being a first-time entrepreneur and you know um really understanding quite slowly um because this is a long time ago i mean obviously if we'd set up you can book me now with the kind of growth rates that we had then we would know instantly oh you're in SaaS. this is freemium you know, this is what you need to do. These are the decisions you need to make. I would, I would make um, decisions very differently now as a second time entrepreneur than I did 12, 13 years ago with You Can Book Me. Yeah. So I think my natural caution was that if we took on investors, they would probably push us towards making business decisions um, to, to help grow the company that I don't think would necessarily have been either the right one or would have destabilized us or we we had different priorities at the time. Well, that's a good feeling to have today. Well, you made the right decision. I, I still see it, though, as a risk, mm, oddly, yeah. because I can see the fact that me and Keith, the fact that we own 100% of our company means that we, we there's a danger always of us being 
you know, tyrannical. Yeah. And I think tyrannical decision making inside a company is 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 bad. You know, you don't want to run a company with a command and control ethos. So we've done a huge amount inside the company over time to evolve you know, uh, essentially responsible governance one way or another. And that does mean about uh, bringing in, we have, we're, we're fairly well, uh, we're fairly well run. We're an extremely well run company and we have really good HR policies and procedures and we have really good uh, practices around the way we manage decisions in order to stop people like me and Keith who have this, you know, very, very um, uh, a brutal kind of command and control option to, to, to potentially harm the company. Mm. Um, and, th- you know, there's lots of um, academic books that have been written about that, whether, you um, I think it's called The Entrepreneur's Dilemma, um, um, where the, the book looks at a study of, of um, bootstrap-owned companies or indeed owner-run companies um, and companies that have, you know, a board and they have shared ownership and they have shared investor interest. And those companies tend to actually do better than companies that are owned and run by founders um, because founders have their own opinions about everything. And um, and that potentially can lead to suboptimal commercial decisions. Yep. So I am I am aware that we we, we have a, a, it's a mix, it is a mixed bag. It's, it's not something, it's not something that's so obvious unless you look at it from my personal perspective. But again, that's something from a mental health perspective. Yeah. You also need good boundaries to think about. Yeah. So I must ask, was this an insight you got yourself uh, about, you know, not being tyrannical and all of that? Or was that something that you, you faced uh, along the way? Or ba- Basically uh, saying that somebody said, Bridget, stop being a tyrant. <laughs> so I said, so no, I think that this came from me uh, because my background working in politics, I, my, my, my area of interest and expertise is actually in democratic decision making. It's in it's it's in it's in democratic theory. It's in power sharing, in pluralism, in voting. So I have a, a political and academic interest in in sharing power. So power as a as a notion is really interesting to me. You had a democratic background. You you believed in democracy and 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 not in uh, dictatorship then. Right. Okay. Good one. I what I'm interested in is it's I'm interested in how people make decisions. Yeah. Just generally, and it's fascinating inside software companies, particularly inside companies that are geared towards you know, a capitalist outcome, which is making money and how you can say, well, this is a, this is a machine that's geared towards making money. Cause we, you know, we're in the, in a capitalist context here. Yeah. We're not a charity and we're, you know, we're, and we're not a university department. However, um, how you make those decisions and the quality of those decisions get better when you do these things. And this is where I would talk about culture and recruitment and, um, you know, decision-making across the board, um, Where you where you want to attract really good people to make decisions and to do well, and you don't do that if you're just nobody wants to go and work for a tyrant. No, maybe next uh, content piece we do together will be you know what you can learn from uh, being into politics when you drive your SaaS company. So oh goodness, um, but uh, that's for another time. So when you started, how, how did you fund this operation? How how could you I mean just get things going from the start? Um, well, we did it slowly over time, and I think that you know generally there's sort of, there's there's potentially some urban myths about bootstrapping as if somehow you know it's like an option for every founder, you know, and it's just like some people go for VC, some people bootstrap, and you know you just press you take the green button, you you, you take the red pill or the blue pill or whatever, and actually it happens a lot more slowly and organically. So like lots of people, 
running companies, we worked. So we did carry on doing, uh, you know, consultancy. So I worked doing um, local government consultancy uh, for a few years after I left my full time job. Um, we borrowed money from the bank. We had private loans. Um, so we raised money um, in the first couple of years just to fund some of the things that we wanted to do, like hiring people. Um, and then after a while, critically, we earned money from um, what we'd, we we um, lived off money in advance. So in terms of subscription um, software, you can sell 12, 24-month um contracts and then obviously you get 12 months worth of income and there's some accountancy um, implications for that but what you're really doing is building up a um, you know a source of cash to pay for things even if technically speaking your company isn't making a profit and that's what we did for five years so for five years we grew so fast um, we could borrow money and pay it back with the money that we were getting from customers in advance over a five-year period until we finally hit profitability in 2017. And then we just haven't looked back since then. Okay, so you started to to loan money from, from your customers, basically. In effect, that's what you do. I mean, you have you have to manage it, obviously, from accountancy perspective. It's still customer money. It's sitting on your balance sheet. Yeah. So until you make a profit, it's a liability. You have to potentially pay it back depending on your terms but no this is this is the this is the trick like what you're really doing is you're living off a cash income rather than a um a subscription income because you can take cash in pay for whoever it is that you want to employ and whether there's a freelancers or contractors or employees doesn't matter um and then what after a while the money that you owe those customers sits in your bank account and then meets your balance sheet liability to the point where you can then start to put your assets on top and start making a profit. Yeah, and how long time did it take for you to be profitable? You can book me first customers in 2011, and um, it was the 2016-2017 financial year in the UK that we made profit. I think we made about £150,000 in profit, which was very exciting. It was about a million pounds turnover at the time. So it was about a million pounds turnover, And about 150,000 pounds of that was profit. So it was about a 10% profit. Must have felt amazing, right? It Must did. Must have felt amazing when you, yeah. It's like finally, woo, no, that, that's, that's exciting. It was. And, 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 you know, and again, profit is something which is sort of bizarrely seen as a bit of a dirty word in the VC funded world. Yeah. Uh, they don't want you to, they don't want you to hoard cash or make money mm. um, because they want you to invest all the money they've given you in hiring people and growing because it's a big bet. It's a massive bet. Right. So, In, in some ways, it's a very different kind of business plan to the one that I had, which was, you know, be able to uh, have more money left over every month in my bank account than it cost me to provide the service. Yeah. And it means that for things like, I mean, we didn't think at that time about pandemics or war or or uh, you know a massive uh, economic slowdown so you used all the all the all the profit to celebrate how did you celebrate the 150 we didn't celebrate at all <laughs> no <laughs> no i'm very mean i think at the time we might still have only been giving people chromebooks as uh, lap uh, lap laptops yeah i i mean i think we mean you and your uh, co-founder in this case did we celebrate the only thing i remember celebrating specifically in terms of a financial goal was myself, Keith, and my long-term uh, colleague, Kate, and her husband, Michael. We went to Pizza Express <laughs> one August, and this was obviously, we're August now, so this was probably about 10 years ago, when we brought in £8,000 into our monthly Stripe account. And I just, you know, we now, we now take in that in a day. 
All right. easily. Yeah. But I just, I couldn't believe we had brought in £8,000. Yeah. It just seemed to be such a huge amount of money, such an incredible thing. If you're running a company and running a business and customers are prepared to give you the total of £8,000. And we went to Pizza Express to celebrate. Was it an all you can eat? No, have you not been to Pizza Express? No, no, we don't, we don't have that here. Oh, it's really good pizza. And they don't do all you can eat. No, they do. They just do. They do classic. PR and communication are the keys to building awareness for your company. You want to make sure you reach the right people with the right message at the right time. My News Desk is a smart PR platform where you can manage all your communication efforts in one place. My News Desk makes it easier for companies of all sizes to create awareness and build relations with the people that matter the most to you. Don't make PR harder than it needs to be. Visit mynewsdesk.com to start your free trial. I mean, at some point, obviously, throughout your journey, you must have been approached by, by VCs rather aggressively, I would guess now. Mm. Like, have you ever thought like, man, the entire world around me is swimming in money. So people are, you know, taking in so much capital. You know what? I should just do it as well. Um, uh, no, actually. Uh, but, but then, you know, that's like saying to me, oh, like, you know, you can walk down the street and there's loads of fast food outlets. And why wouldn't you eat McDonald's every day? You say, like, well, because it's not healthy to eat McDonald's every day. So if you've got a good rational sense of yourself. But it is tasty. Well, I mean, it's, I'm not saying no <laughs> to the odd burger. But, I, but, you know, like children, like children saying, why don't you eat sugar all the time? I would. I would just eat hot chocolate powder right. <laughs> all the time. Now, actually, if you're a grown-up and you run a grown-up business, you know, these are this is one choice amongst many. I must say, knowing what I know now, I, I don't have any problem at all in saying this to people in their 20s. You know, if you want to piss away your 20s taking a shed load of VC cash and spending it on a, a whole load of different product MVPs, pay yourself, not a huge amount, but better than probably you're going to get working in, you know, in a local pub and, and just have a whale of a time because there's, there's VC money available for venture. That's what that, the, the trick is in the word. It's venture. Mm. So venture capitalists want to give you loads of money to spread loads of bets across loads of different ideas. And they're just going to chuck that money at you. And if you are in the right kind of frame of mind, then take that money, make those bets, have fun, get paid. Yeah. Uh, you know, that is, that's fantastic. And maybe in my 20s, I would have been a lot more experienced uh, when we launched You Can Book Me if I had done that. I wasn't doing anything like that in my 20s. Um, and it looks like fun to me. But that's not, you know, and, and some of those companies become incredible companies yeah. with amazing opportunities for people and do amazing things. So, you know, you don't, that's the kind of nothing ventured, nothing gained. Mm. In our context, we, what I suppose, you know, I was obviously a bit older, um, and um, just to have a different kind of uh, profile. And You Can Book Me, for me, was always a business that had to work. It needed to make money. It needed to pay me. It needed to pay Keith. It needed to pay the people that we employed. Right. So for me, 
you know, the idea of somebody coming along and saying, well, let me give you a million pounds and then we'll see whether we can make this a unicorn. For me, it's like, well, no, let me just see whether I can make this a profitable company that's going to pay right. uh, for people's jobs. And right. so, and I have seen, you know, the thing for me that is is a celebration, and I know this is going to sound like I've, this is like a line, like I've made this up and it's really corny, but it's true that the celebration that I get from You Can Book Me being successful over a long period of time is that I've seen people who work for You Can Book Me Build, literally build houses, buy land, build houses, live there. That's amazing. You know, have have babies, get married, buy houses, move. There's somebody right now traveling around Europe in a van, um, you know, and they do all of that because the security work that you can book me is that they've got a job, yeah. you know, and, and we've been profitable. We've paid profit share. So we've paid. So when you can book me has had enough to go around, we pay out profit share. And that is incredible to see that. Right. And this is a much smaller number of people, mm. but at the same time, we've done really well in our own terms. So, so Bridget, I have a, a, a call it a double-edged question for you. Like, and you touched upon it a little bit in the beginning here. Like, but if you would list your you know, top three benefits or advantages of running your business the bootstrapped way oh. versus the top three, call it limitations of running it as a bootstrap. Okay, that's a good question. So, top three advantages are only in hindsight. Right. So, the hindsight, the, the, you know, in hindsight, you own all your business. Own all your business, number one. You own it all. So, you're richer in many, many ways. Yep. You can be, if, you're, if your business is very successful, you can be richer in owning 100% of your small SaaS company than owning 10% of a very big SaaS company, depending on your, so that's, that's a famous thing that happens. Right. Founders give away a lot of their shares and they end up with a lot less than they would have done had they carried on owning it. Yeah. But I think also it speaks to generally people who want to control their own destiny. Right. Um, the things that I've enjoyed very much about bootstrapping you can book me is that I have saved burnout and risk that can happen over a two to three year time frame when you basically need to deliver and that can be extremely traumatic for people. And I think that with being being a long-term bootstrapper, you just learn the art of patience over a long period of time. So as I said, in, in, in the history of the company, we've had people join in their 20s. They're now in their 30s. You can see their lives change and develop. My life has changed and developed. Right. We, you get to see perspective over a long period of time and learn. And that's, that in itself is very satisfying. And I've never, been a, I've never had that kind of accelerative push, mm. which leads you to make big mistakes, which can be extremely stressful. Gotcha. Um, so those are good ones. And, and what, what about challenges or limitations? Oh, some really shit he means. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the point that I was making before, I think that as a bootstrapper, maybe it's not now so much the case, but it was 12 years ago, very little network and community for people like us. That makes me sound like an alien. But, um, <laughs> you know, so many conferences that are dedicated to companies that assume you've got a five million pound, you know, bank balance and you've got a, and you're burning half a million a month. And all your choices are defined by the fact that you get to spend money. So one of my um, common phrases is, you know, you can learn how to spend money or you can learn how to make money, but they are different things. Yeah. Um, so that, so a lot of SaaS conferences are dedicated to learning how to spend money, uh, whereas I was always wanting to learn how to make money. So um, I think that having that network of people who are 
you know, who, who understand what you're doing and can give you advice and give you mentorship and coaching, that is very strong and very good inside VC-funded companies for obvious reasons. Um, whereas with bootstrap companies, you tend to find quite a lot of entrepreneurs doing things slightly eccentrically and separately their own separate ways. They all bootstrap for slightly different reasons. And so you don't get this kind of much more core thing in common that you can advise people on. I think bootstrapping is, you know, it isn't, it's, 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 it's probably a catch-all term. It doesn't necessarily lend itself to um, obvious lessons, which is what we're trying to do right now, which is try to learn lessons. Um, but I do, I do think lack of, a, lack of a good advising network. I think I would say to anybody who is thinking about bootstrapping that you have to, like, who, what are the things that I've done to mitigate against potential risks and one is being inside your own your own silo. Mm. Um, you need to because that network is brought to you if you if you have uh, an investor network. And that's why networks like Asla exist. Precisely. You don't have to be alone anymore. Well, this is why I love this. I mean, it was just fantastic coming to uh, Sassiest um, uh, late last year. It was just it was or earlier this year. Sorry, it was no, it was really good because you get to meet a lot of bootstrappers. So. You know, the first SaaS conferences I started to go to that had other bootstrappers meant a lot to me for that reason. Mm. I mean, you've got, you, you you potentially, you know, you're on your own. I think you need to be comfortable with shouldering a huge amount of risk. You you just, you know, you haven't got that kind of board to go back to, to then say, we need to raise some more money or we need to get money from somewhere. Right. Um, you know, you are, you, you have to be comfortable with the fact that you are the king of your own castle. And that is, that's what you've created. Yeah. Um, and that's not for everybody because, you know, it's the same point. People love, a, people love a network, but they also like sharing the, sharing the risk. So I think being risk averse is a, is a, you know, an advantage and a disadvantage. Yeah. So, Bridget, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you for sharing your story and experiences. Um, also, I think there are many out there that, uh, you know, get inspired but, uh, of your history here. But uh, <laughs> is there anyone that inspires you that you would like us to try to get on the show? I think that the, the, the thing that I've learned recently, let's just talk about a book that I've learned recently, which I just, I just found very, um, very helpful. I recently read The um, Traction which is, uh, covers what they call the entrepreneur's operating system. And um, I think it's by Gino Wickman or something. Um, I read that recently because um, we introduced some new changes inside You Can Book Me company to basically make us more operationally robust, make our communication, our processes, our decision-making and our management systems more robust. And I think that, that we probably don't hear enough from people about how they actually run companies, not just how they sell or how they market or all their growth tactics, which are all very exciting and interesting. But at the end of the day, you're also running a company of people uh, with business processes in place. Yeah. And I think we tend to hide a lot of that. Um, and just recently, um, you know, we've done a lot of refreshing inside You Can Book Me uh, because we kind of went off the rails slightly on the way we we, we had our sort of our organizational capacity uh, went down. We added loads more people, and our organizational capacity went down, ironically. And so I, I've been spending the last six months thinking a lot about how to bring back You Can Book Me to a more of an efficient and optimized uh, cadence. Yeah. And that's something which I think that everybody benefits from, regardless of whether they're bootstrapped or or VC funded. Which is just how to run an efficient operation, and that's what I'm doing at the moment. That's what I'm thinking about at the moment. All right, we'll look into that subject. Um 
Maybe Daniel, you can read the book. And, and tell you all about it. Read it. <laughs> thank you for being with us. Great seeing you again. And um, hope to see you soon. Likewise. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you so much for coming. Take care now. So Daniel, what's your takeaway from this episode? Very inspired by Bridget, always super inspired, like some really good tips and tricks. It's really nice to hear some of the, the you know, behind the scenes and the backstory as to the decision making and so on. And then when I take what she said here and add it to some of the public dialogue that's out there about, you know, bootstrapper versus not bootstrapper and so on, it's been almost like a philosophical question. I think that there's nothing wrong in doing either or. I think it comes down to the opportunity at hand. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to take in money. And that could be different reasons. And then you need to bootstrap and so on. And that puts certain challenges on you as a business, you know, obviously. But sometimes the opportunity is so big or whatever it is that you got it all figured out and you know how to handle it and you're ready to give up 20, 25% of your business because there's a billion dollar waiting for you around the corner. And then, you know, maybe the VC route is, is right. And then you're going to run your business in a different way. And like you said, you know, you, you, there's a different risk. You don't control fully all the decisions and so on. Yeah. But for me, it's like, it's not either or. And we see that many bootstrappers at some point take on external capital to further accelerate, you know, so. Yeah, as you said, I mean, one one thing is the speed that you need to grow to, to grab that opportunity. And another way, depending on what kind of product you develop, I mean, you could have a product that require years of development and yeah. you need to put a, a really a lot of things before you can get it in the hands of a customer. Exactly. But if you can start, you know, having that minimal viable product or a product that you actually can start selling then you can let your customers sort of fund your product by upfront payment or you know other things as well that Bridget talked about so um, yeah so it depends on your product and uh, what journey that uh, you want to embark on and um, yeah yeah and it seems also we have talked to many bootstrappers and many of them say well you know, the next time I might go the VC round. So it feels like that's something that a lot of people want to do at least one time. Yeah, but we've also heard the other way around that, you know, many VC-backed founders feel like next time I'm going the bootstrap route. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to give all equity away. I want to make uh, my own decision. So yeah. yeah, it seems like, you know, have you had uh, one, you want the other one next time. Yeah. No, but it's 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 really good, and and I, I don't want to put uh, Bridget on the hot seat here, but, you know, she is a fantastic resource to anybody that wants to learn more about bootstrapping and figuring out and making the most out of the, that opportunity. So, yeah. you know, uh, sorry, sorry, Bridget, but I'm going to just, you know, say that connect with Bridget on LinkedIn or in some of our forums. I'm sure she can share more, more data with you guys. Yeah, she's creating a lot of content. She's uh, sharing very generously. So um, keep an eye, eye out and take part of it. So uh, with that also, um, there is a lot of way to share experiences with companies, both bootstrapped and uh, VC-funded companies. If you're a CEO, uh, we have the Sassiest CEO Network. We have uh, a new round coming up here for 2024 where we're going to have people in smaller cohorts that, um, that can share experiences with each other. Um, we are looking into, I think, having 150 CEOs for, for next year here. And uh, you should apply. And we can tell you more about it in detail. You can go to sassiest.com, look under communities, and you find the website. 
And um, if you're an executive, maybe you're a VP or higher at the company with 2 million euro in ARR or up, we also have the executive network within nine different disciplines that meets in a similar way. There is one difference, that network is free. So you should definitely check it out. And if you don't belong to any of these groups, you're always welcome to the SASiest Slack community, open for anyone working within B2B SaaS here in Europe. So um, with that, we hope to see you more and that you will engage more with the SASiest community. And uh, also, See you in the next episode. Take care now. See you.